Well, we can turn back to Isaiah 53, and I'd like us to think about part of verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, as we have um, seen, as we've been looking at this uh, servant song, it has five sections, beginning at verse um, 13 of chapter 52 and running on to the end of chapter 53. And it's fairly easy to identify the five sections because each of them has three verses in it. The speaker in each of the sections are, is different. Um, it's not always, always the same speaker that says something in this song. But the, the speaker in the first section, that's in chapter 52, at verse 13 to 15, and the speaker in the final section from verses 10 to 12, is God the Father. And I suppose um, that's a common feature of, um, of um, structured poetry that we are uh, meant to observe. And the start and the conclusion of the, of the song have the opinion of the father about the servant. And as we saw in the start of chapter, for the start of the first section, there in verse 13 of chapter 52, um, the father starts with an instruction. He's um, not merely suggesting that this would be good for us uh, to do what he says in verse 13, when he says, Behold my servant. It's not uh, just a piece of advice that um, we can take or leave. It's actually a command that we are uh, to uh, gaze at him, that we are to uh, focus our thinking on him, and we are to um, admire him, because that's the point of looking at him. It's not a look of curiosity, but it's a look of pleasure, a look of uh, gratitude, a look of satisfaction that at long last we have found something that we can look at forever. And the Father, God the Father, just says to us, Behold my servant. And he tells us at the start of the first section, verse 13, where it is that we are going to see him. Where do we behold him? And, of course, when we think of Isaiah 53, uh, we might um, 
jump to the conclusion that the place where we are to behold him is on the cross. And of course, that's certainly um, part of the message of this song. But both the feature that's there in verse 13 of chapter 52 and is also found uh, the last verse of the final section there in verse 12 of chapter 53 is that we have to behold him in his exaltation. It says that there in verse uh, 13 he shall act wisely, and, behold, and because he acted wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then in the subsequent verses, we're given a range of places where he was. And in those places, he acted wisely. Whether it was in his life, as we can see from verse 2 onwards of chapter 53, or whether it was in his death, an awful death. But we're to remember that whether in his life or in his death, he's going to be active because he's going to be acting wisely. We know that as a youngster, when he was 12, what's highlighted about him in Luke chapter 2 is his wisdom. He grew in stature and in favor. He grew in wisdom before God and man. And on the cross, as we look at him there, and we are invited to look at him, and we should ask ourselves, well, what about him should we look at? And the answer to that question is, look at his wisdom. What would a wise person do in such a situation? And as we think about the cross, and as we know, Jesus made our seven recorded sayings of Jesus. And each of these seven sayings highlights his wisdom. How should you react to soldiers who are nailing you to a cross? Especially since you have the power to get rid of all of them with a second, well thought. How should you react to that? What would be the wise thing to do? What would be the wise thing for him to do 
when we remember that he's there. He's not there as a victim, although it looks as if he was a victim of injustice. That's not the primary reason why he's there. He's there as a savior. So since he's there as a savior, what is the wise thing for him to do as far as these soldiers are concerned who are crucifying him? The wise thing to do is to pray for them. So he does. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And was his wise policy successful? Well, what happens to these soldiers? What do they say about him a few hours later? After having, almost in a certain sense, doing what God says to us to do, after beholding him, because they sat down and watched him there. What is their conclusion? Well, we're told what the centurion said. Surely this is the Son of God. And they all said, surely this was a righteous man. He acted wisely. What should he say to a penitent criminal? To somebody who says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What would a wise savior say to that man? A cruel man. A man who a few minutes before that had been taunting Jesus. Well, the wise savior said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we're to admire his wisdom. What a wonderful thing to say. He could have said to him, today you'll be in paradise. And that would have been very good, wouldn't it? Well, he could have said to him, you'll be in paradise. And that would be good as well, but not quite as good as what he said. Because when he said to him today, well, the Jewish day ends at six o'clock. And it's about noon, just before noon, when all that conversation takes place. So he basically said to him, within six hours, you'll be in paradise. What a wise thing to say. What does he say when he can't discern his father's presence? As the darkness comes down, even the sun not shining. What would a wise servant say in such a situation? 
How about pretending that it wasn't happening? Would that be wise? Why not just be stoical and endure it all and say nothing? But in his wisdom, he wants us to know what he went through. He wants us to be aware of the, what our sins deserved. And what better place could he say it from, what it deserved, our sins? Just to say, when we listen in, I'm forsaken because of your sin. And that gives a whole new meaning to the word forsaken. But how wise he was. Because now we know what salvation cost him. Imagine if he hadn't said that. How would we describe the cross? What should a wise man do on the cross when he sees his mother standing there? The mother to whom he said on a previous occasion when she suggested he turn some water into wine. Woman, what have I to do with that? That was a wise answer. But what's he going to say to her now on the cross? Does he just leave her in her distress? Just tells tells her and tells John that John will take care of her. And after completing the most amazing project ever in human history, what word will the wise servant use to describe it? I mean, if it's left to us to try and describe it, well, we can see the outcome. There's millions of books about it. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is that it takes Jesus one word to describe it. Finished. It's done. Completed. It's the same word that a carpenter would use when he had finished making a chair or something. Finished. Completed. But having 
paid the penalty for the sins of his people, what words are you going to use for that? Finished. It's done. Completed. And it's important, I think, that we realize it's completion that he's stressing. It's an achievement. He's done something. He's not just been, as it were, on the receiving end, if we want to put it that way. He has been interacting. His faith has been working on the cross. Indeed, the most arduous activity took place at Calvary. There's never been anything like it. And the other two that were with him, although they certainly suffered, it was nothing like his suffering. But wisely, he tells us. And he also tells us how he's going to die. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bows his head. So he dealt wisely in his life and in his death. And because he dealt wisely, he's highly exalted. He'll be, high, he'll be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And the Heavenly Father comes back to that in verse 12. And in the part that we read from verse 12, there's three things that I would like us to think about. There's, what will the Father do for Jesus? Well, here he is telling us. It's both a promise and an announcement of his purpose. What will he do for Jesus? Well, he tells us, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. But then secondly, what will Jesus do with that? When he gets it. And the Heavenly Father tells us what he will do. He, that's Jesus, the servant, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And then thirdly, why is this going to happen? Why is the father going to do that for his servant? And why is the servant going to do what he is going to do here, dividing the spoil of the strong? Why are they going to do that? And the answer is because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So here's the Heavenly Father and he says about him, I will divide him a portion with the many. And this is obviously a picture of a reward. I am going to give him was described here as a portion after he has suffered on the cross. And he is going to get this 
when he's highly exalted. Now, of course, Jesus as God has always been exalted. But there's another way of looking at him, and the Bible encourages us to look at him this other way, and that is as the God-man, as the mediator, as the one who took on a human nature without ceasing to be divine, and who lived down here among us, and as the God-man was here on earth, and as the God-man went to the cross. His human nature continually united to his divine person, wherever he was, wherever he went. And that was it. And one day, three days after his suffering, his human nature rose from the dead. It had been denighted to his divine person when he was dead. But now it experienced resurrection. And not a resurrection like Lazarus or any of the others who were raised from the dead. When they were raised from the dead, they just came back the way they were before. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the head of the new humanity. Uh, the one who was going to uh, transform all his people. And all of them themselves would experience glorification eventually. But when he would come the second time and he would raise them from the dead, they would be changed into his likeness. That's a wonderful plan that God has, isn't it? But there's Jesus. And he ascends to glory. And there in glory, he's given glory. Because what else would you expect him to be given there? And the glory is his portion. As the exalted man in heaven... He's given great glory. Why is he given it? Apart from it being a reward, why is he given it? Well, how, how many portions are there in this verse? There's many people. Because I will divide the portion with the many, and the many go back to those who are mentioned in the previous verse the ones whom he suffered on behalf and the ones whom he counted righteous. And there he goes up to heaven and he's given this, what we could call this heavenly portion, but he's not just given it for himself. He's given it to divide with his people. Heavenly Father, almost you put it this way, gave to his heir something to share with his co-heirs. He gets it because he deserves it. We get it because he's gracious. And he's going to share it with all his people. And where does he share it? 
Well, he shares it, whatever his people are. So he shares it with those down here, and he shares it with those up in heaven. And they just receive out of his fullness. Blessings don't come from anywhere else. They don't, they don't come because we happen to be more dedicated, although it's good to be as dedicated as we can be. Every blessing we have, we have in Christ. And the fact that we are currently down here doesn't mean we can't get the blessings out of from Christ. As he said to his disciples before he left, my peace I give to you. My joy I give to you. The love of Christ. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts while living in this world. He's dividing a portion with the many. And the many all get it. He's got no favorites. As if he's going to miss so-and-so out on Tuesday. He just divides it. So he's given this portion by the Heavenly Father. How much does the Father love us? Well, what did he give to his Son to give to us? Salvation. Fullness of grace. Amazing. But then secondly, what does the Son do with this? He's given all this to share with the many. But as the song says, having got it, he divides the spoil with the strong. And that's a military metaphor. He's been in a battle, and he's, as it were, won something on their behalf, and he is going to share it with them. If we want to put it in another way, he's the administrator of the heavenly kingdom. And part of his role is to share the spoil what he has won from his great victory. And he's going to share it with those who are strong. Who can be described as the strong? Because they are the same as the many. And we might say to ourselves, well, how can we be described as strong? And if someone did ask us that question, what would we say? Well, there are various suggestions made as to what it means to be strong. We sang about one of them in Psalm 110. 
Because there in Psalm 110, there's a picture of his army. Your people shall offer themselves in the day of his power. And this day of his power extends from his ascension to his return. So in the, that period, all these converts are going to enlist in his army. And today, around the world, there's millions and millions of them. And, and before this, all down these nine, 20 centuries have passed, people have been enlisting into his army. And if it was to appear, what size it would be. So some people say that's why they're called the strong, because they're, they're just numerous. And it was, as we sang in Psalm 110, they're triumphant. The second reason that's given as to why they're strong is because they're united to Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 2, that they already are raised with Christ and they're seated with Christ. But when they says they're seated with Christ, it means they're seated on a throne. And the kind of people that sit on a throne are strong, aren't they? So, we could put it this way, the great king shares his exaltation with those who are also made kings and priests to God. And that's the second suggestion that is made because they're exalted with Jesus already, united to him, where he is, they are. I think there's a more simple reason as to why they're described as strong, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's in their hearts. And as the Apostle John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I mean, that's a straight statement, isn't it, if ever was one. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit's in the hearts of all God's people. And because that is the case, they can do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, but the spiritual armor, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And when they put on the spiritual armor, there they are. They're strong. So you can divide the spoil with the strong. Their strength, of course, is in him. It's nowhere else. But the strength is there. And therefore they have to live in the strength. And these blessings that are promised to us, they're only given to the strong. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, and he prays that we may know the love of Christ, the length, the breadth, and the depth, and the height of it, he precedes that request by saying that we will be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Strength to experience the, the amazing love of Jesus.
when the peace of God comes flowing like a river into our souls, what do we need when that happens? Strength. When the joy of the Lord is poured into our souls, and of course the picture there is of copiousness, we need strength. The spoil is the blessings he has fought to win on our behalf and for them to be enjoyed by us. We need spiritual power. And Paul Peter says that his divine power has given to us all things that we need for life and godliness. We can never say we are strong in ourselves, but neither should we ever say that God will not give us strength. There is an exalted Christ shares his spoil with those he makes strong. This spiritual capability, if you want to put it this way, is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And therefore we have to ask ourselves, don't we, What has Jesus shared with us today? I mean, it's a real question. What has he shared with us in our souls? What do we know of his spoil, his treasure? His resources. I mean, the strength is there. Stories told of um, D.L. Moody walking down the street in New York, and for some reason, God's love started to pour into his heart. And he felt he couldn't stand. And therefore, he says he prayed what was a wrong prayer. He asked God to stop. And he said afterwards, he should have prayed for strength to bear it. But you know, our wise Savior knows what to give us. And he knows when to give it. 
and we should be saying to him, shouldn't we? Give us the strength to enjoy your spoil. And what does Paul and the others start their letters with? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we, as we sit and read that, do we take that as the, a kind of first century equivalent of hello, how are you? Or are they saying to us something that they want, that these authors want us to have? Grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there he is. Behold him. He's up there in the heavenly throne. And he's dividing the spoil with the strong. He never runs out of spoil. And he can make his people strong to have it. Because we can't have it any other way. We're not capable of enduring it without his strength. Why is he going to do this? Why does Jesus do this? Well, the answer is fairly simple. He did it because he died so that we could have it. Because he poured out his soul to death. The Heavenly Father gives him his reward because he poured out his soul to death. But why does Jesus divide it? Because he's poured out his soul unto death. He died not only that we would be forgiven, but that we would have the blessings of the kingdom. Now, in our souls, as an author wrote years ago, the life of God in the soul of man. He was willing to die so that all his people all over the world, down the centuries, We'll be able to experience what's described here as his spoil. It's almost as if he says to us, I died so that you would have life, heavenly life, spiritual life.
which our souls experience the bounty of his grace. We are now numbered amongst those who share the spoil. But where was he numbered? We are found on the list of names whom he desires to bless. But where was he numbered? in order for us to get these privileges. Well, he was numbered with the transgressors. I think when the song is saying this, it's describing the depth of his humiliation. I mean, where would he normally be numbered? Well, we could say he would normally be numbered amongst the Trinity. But where was he numbered? On the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. If he was going to be on the list of the sinless people, there would only be his name in the list. But here he is. And he was willing to be numbered with the transgressors so that we could share the spoil that he purchased. So I asked myself, and I ask you, what do we know of the spoil that the Savior administers? It's not because his sources are running out in the year 2023. There's as much in his spoil as there ever was. It doesn't matter how much he gives. It always remains full. But we have to go to him for strength. So God says, Behold him. Behold my servant with his hands full of blessing, which can be yours. And basically we get strength by beholding him, isn't it? We get strength by beholding him. It looks and I could be wrong with this. But it looks as if our enjoyment of the blessing 
depends on the time we spend with him. Just gazing on him. Looking at him. Our Savior and our Lord. And as we do, it's almost the streams of love and peace and joy flow to our hearts. But if we spend our time gazing at other things, these other things may take up the space that should be given to his love and his peace, his joy and all the other benefits he has. Anyway, isn't it good to know that the Father and the Son share this purpose? The Father says, stop with this, the Father says to us, I will give him a portion to divide with the many. That portion is big enough to last forever. I'll give him a portion to divide with the many. And the son says, I will divide it with the strong. That's it. Shall we pray?